Last week, we started a new series in, uh, for the fall. We'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, quite arguably Jesus' famous, most famous sermon, but actually the most famous sermon there ever is. Uh, most people are familiar with it or are familiar with parts of it, and so we're going to take uh, the fall and look at it in more detail. And we started last week with what um, I said is the doorway to the sermon, um, otherwise known as the Beatitudes. It's these seven blessed statements, uh, statements of blessing for those um, who, as we looked at last week, uh, have poverty of spirit, who um, mourn, and those who are meek, and then who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at the other side of that, those who uh, are merciful, those who are pure in heart, and those who are peacemakers. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Matthew, and I'll be reading chapter 5, verses 1 to 9 here. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, our time here together. We pray now that as we just heard your word, we pray that you would give us your spirit, that it would open our eyes and ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. We pray for a miracle, and by a miracle that you would soften hardened hearts to respond to your word. Would you do this for your glory alone? Amen. Well, what motivates you to action? What motivates you to change? Maybe you want to change something in your life. Something's not going the way you want it to go. What, what, what motivates you to do that? When I was in college, uh, there were two distinct times throughout the calendar year where this sort of thing happened that motivated change on the campus. I'm positive it's not like this anymore. But when I was in college, the first one was exam week. And uh, exam week always seemed to move people to a direction of actually opening books and reading them and flooding the library to study. Uh, we had all-nighters, we crammed for exams. Not everybody, of course, those who actually did well in college studied, they, they, they did this thing where they studied every day. But uh, for others who didn't want to fail or at least wanted to pass, right, the exam week was that motivation to actually get in there and study and do something with your life. Um, I might be speaking a personal experience with that one. The other one, though, happened around somewhere towards the end of February. And this one was sort of that, that you're coming out of winter and you've just made your spring break plans for, to go to, to the beach and you realize something's got to change before that day in your life. So that and you know what I'm talking about. Thanks for that laughter. So what happened? Or you, you actually started caring about what you ate. Uh, you might have started jogging around a track or doing some type of exercise because you knew that, that there's a day coming when you're going to be wearing let's just say not a sweater, and 
there is trembling and fear for what that day might bring. But so we, we move into action uh, sometime between, it's, like a, it's almost like a Lent in and of itself, like the six weeks leading up to spring break. Right? What creates change for you or this motivation to change, this desire to change? And see, this doesn't really end, right, when, when we are in college, right? It, it, it's all throughout life, right? News of an engagement, right, for parents springboards them into action to go and plan a wedding. Right? News of a child that is coming into this world springboards that family to go, uh, you know, paint a nursery, among other things, for high school students that are approaching graduation and, and thinking about college, right, there is this, this action to move into studying for this test called the ACT or the SAT so that you can potentially be considered to be accepted into the college of your choice if you score high enough. And this changes us. It gives us a hunger and a thirst, if you will, uh, to study hard. Or maybe it's just a job promotion, right? You are uh, in a spot, but you want to be at a different spot in that profession. And this, this creates a hunger and thirst for you to, to, to action, to move into um, your work differently. Uh, or maybe you just want to make some more money. Either way, what motivates you to change? What motivates you to go in the direction uh, to, to, to action, well, as we began last week with those Beatitudes as the doorway into the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at those first three, and we, we call those attitudes of need, characteristics of need of the kingdom. It's who receives Jesus' kingdom. It's the person who can admit, right, self-acknowledgement, admit their need, their poverty of spirit, poverty of spirit, right, which leads them to their mourning of their, of their uh, poverty of spirit, or, or what we'll talk about today as repentance, and then it creates this meekness or this humility, this, this right view of oneself that then lends itself to this hunger and thirst. Where do I go to, to, to find satisfaction with what is lacking in my life? And that drives us, as we said last week, to hunger and thirst for righteousness for which you will be satisfied. And that hunger and thirst, right, that righteousness comes to us from Jesus. Now, for, for a lot of us, we've grown up in the church or we've been a, a part of a Christianity where that's where it ends. And if that's kind of where that is for you this morning, you're in a good spot because Jesus is going to teach you and me that that's not where it ends. That actually receiving this righteousness from Jesus, which is grace, by the way, is the thing that sends us into action. It is the thing that causes us to change. And how does it do it? It sends us into action to be merciful to be pure in heart, and to be peacemakers. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to look at two things, right? Two points. One, what is this righteousness that we hunger and thirst for? We need to stay there for just a little bit and unpack that for a second. But then what does this righteousness do to us? Okay? What is this righteousness we hunger and thirst for? And then what does it do to us? So let's take the first one. What is this righteousness that we hunger and thirst for? As you've noticed by now, by the way that I'm talking about these Beatitudes, the pivotal uh, middle Beatitude of hunger and thirst for righteousness that sort of sits in the middle. And then you have your need over here, the three we looked at last week, and you have the action that they correlate to on the other side. But this pivotal one, righteousness, what is this? What is this righteousness that we are to hunger and thirst for? And there are really four types of righteousness that scholars point out in the Bible. The first one is the one that we touched on last week that I, that I imagine that most of us are, are most familiar with, 
which is what, what we would call a personal righteousness, right? This is, broadly speaking, being in the state that one ought to be in. We talked about cleanliness, right, last week. But it's, it's, it's broadly speaking, being right in the presence of a holy God. And we understand the deficit that we have when we are confronted with God's standard or his holiness. We see this in Scripture when the presence of God shows up to people via an angel of the Lord or when Jesus performs a miracle and people who see it know that there is something very different about that man than myself and I don't belong here. Some of us might think about Isaiah in chapter 6 when, 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 when he is brought essentially into the throne room of God. And what is his response? Let me pull up a chair and enjoy this? No, he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He knows he doesn't belong there because of this deficit, this personal righteousness that he lacks. One of my personal favorites is actually though when Jesus interacts with Peter, when Peter um, is out there fishing and he's been fishing all day and he's not caught anything, and Jesus says, well, throw the net on the other side of the boat, which I love that story because Peter is a professional fisherman. How annoying would it be to have somebody tell you, oh, just throw the net on the other side of the boat when you've been out there all day? Right, there's some humor there. But that's what Jesus does. Peter begrudgingly does it. It's like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, but I'll do it. He does it, and we all know the end of the story. He pulls up so many fish in that net that it almost breaks. But what is Peter's response? Do you remember it? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That is the, the, the understanding of, of the personal righteousness that we do not have when we are confronted with holiness. And this is the picture we get all throughout Scripture. And what Jesus promises is, is that for those who then hunger and thirst in that way, for that type of personal righteousness, you will be satisfied. Okay, this is the first one. The second one is what, what, what we call alien righteousness because it asks the question, how am I going to be satisfied if this is not going to come from me? Where is it going to come from? It's going to come from someone outside of you. Alien righteousness of stranger. And this is what we refer to as imputed righteousness from Jesus. It's righteousness that comes from him. And this righteousness that we hunger and thirst for, right, we never, never comes uh, from, from ourselves. We, we never conjure it up or are able to, to, to do enough to warrant this. This is something that comes from Jesus through faith. And this is what we call justification, we had a good talk about this in Sunday school this morning, actually. In other words, upon belief, Jesus' alien righteousness, which is his record, as we might call it, which is his credentials, they are given to you. When I give one of my daughters, and you've, I'm sure you've heard a version of this illustration, when I give one of my daughters my credit card, which is becoming a more and more scary thing, right, and they go, they, go, they go to pay for something. Maybe it's lunch on a Labor Day retreat. There isn't a moment when they're about to swipe the card when the credit card company shows up and they want to do a full analysis of them. What is your income? Right? What is your credit score? We're not sure if we're ready to give you this credit. Right? Which if they did show up and do that to my girls, they would have, they would have, no, they have no income. They have a terrible credit score, as a matter of fact, right now. Um, and therefore, they would not be getting their Chipotle lunch. But that's not what happens, is it, right? When we use something as, as simple as a credit card, when you swipe that card, when they swipe that card, 
they are seen as me. They get my credentials. They get my salary and my credit score, whatever that's worth. But more importantly, they get their lunch. This is exactly what, what is happening when we talk about alien righteousness. Paul will say it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's alien righteousness. That is imputed righteousness. This is how our hunger and thirst is satisfied. So you understand it personally, you, you lack something, but then you also hunger and thirst for what, what is freely given to you in Jesus and his record, okay? But there's a third type, right? After we, we digest that and we know that we are, in one sense, right with God because of Jesus Christ, there's actually a third sense of righteousness. And this is what uh, Dan Doriani in his book refers to as social righteousness, See, you guys knew all about this righteousness. You just didn't have these fun little categories that theologians put it in. Um, But what is social righteousness? It has two forms. The first is the desire for your friends to come to know Jesus. If you're a Christian in this room, I know that you have a desire for your friends or your family or your neighbors to come to know Jesus. If you've ever longed uh, to be a part of uh, evangelism, to go evangelize, if you've ever wanted to see revival happen in your place, that is social righteousness, which is to say that is God coming and, and making himself known to people. It is a cleansing throughout the area, if we want to call it that, which might have more negative connotations today than I'm aware of, actually. But it is God coming and moving into a place and making his presence known. We call it revival. There's a second form of social righteousness, though, that you are hungering and thirsting for, which is often referred to as justice, right? That you long for places that are of injustice to, to, to have justice go to bear in those places. Some of you, of you are in college right now getting degrees so that you can go fight and, 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 and work on that type of righteousness. Thank you, by the way. But we often fall into two different camps sometimes, don't we? Some of us over here, like we are all about the social righteousness that is about evangelism and that is about revival and is about going and telling our neighbors about Jesus. And that's great. And we should do those things. But some of us are also more heavy footed on the other side of that social righteousness, of that demand for justice and that this is how the gospel's worked out. And what Jesus is simply saying in this broad term of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is that my kingdom will have both. My kingdom will have both. That is the third form of righteousness. The fourth term, uh, form of righteousness that you hunger and thirst for is what we might call end times righteousness or quote unquote, making all things new righteousness. This is that desire for cancer to be gone. This is that desire for poverty to be no more. This is that desire for, I, I don't know, the screwdriver that broke while you were using it for things to work the way they're supposed to. It's the promise of God to come in and to make all things new. This is what Jesus is saying, that we are to hunger and thirst for. And when when, when he says those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness, those four kinds, mind you, you will be satisfied. And some of that is present today in the alien imputed righteousness that those who who by faith believe in Jesus have this very moment, some of that we're waiting on. 
waiting on Jesus to return to make all things new. Regardless, you are to hunger and thirst for these things. And I could put it this way, if, if, if righteousness is such a, a, um, a big term, to hunger and thirst for righteousness in those ways, both your personal deficit, the personal righteousness you need, the righteousness that Jesus is going to give you, right, the social righteousness that we talked about, and the end times righteousness of Jesus coming back, all of that can be housed with one statement, that is a longing for God. That is what is indicative about Jesus' kingdom. That to hunger and thirst for these things is not to hunger and thirst for, 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 for just random things throughout, you know, that, that, that are good things to go do. It is actually to want the king. And we're going to talk a lot about this in the, in the weeks to come. But we're, we're talking about a kingdom here that I, I, I bet everybody wants to be a part of. But what he's saying now is like the way that this comes about is that you have to hunger and thirst for the king as well. The one who will give you these things. So I'll say this, if there is an ounce of fire in your soul for your friends or your neighbors or family to know the Lord, that is hunger and thirst, friends. If there is if there, if there's an ounce of fire uh, for you to, um, to see justice be played out in, in this world, that is a hunger and thirst. If you long for the day, an hour even, or a minute of not having a sinful thought or having sin affect some part of you, you hunger and thirst. You're actually longing for God. Do you know that? Do you know that? Because what happens is that in the midst of that longing, we think there are other things that'll, that, that'll satisfy that longing, that'll satisfy that hunger and thirst. This is why G.K. Chesterton, this is what he was getting at when he famously quoted, the man who walks into a brothel is looking for God. It's a strange statement. But what is he saying? This man is looking for blessing. This man is looking for happy, happiness. This man is looking to be, be, for, for all things to be made right in this world, although he's looking in the wrong place. His desires are, aren't wrong. It's where his desires are taking him. Do you know that your hunger and thirst for the things that you want most are actually a longing and a hunger and a thirst for God? This is what Jesus is saying. And what begins to happen as we um, digest that, as we spend time with what, you know, whether it's the mourning, the, the poverty of the spirit, the mourning and the meekness, understanding the righteousness that we receive, that we get by grace alone, as this begins to satisfy, what does it do? It sends us into the, into the world, into action. When you get a taste of this, you cannot sit, sit on your hands. This is what Jesus is saying about his kingdom, and this takes us to our second point here what this righteousness does to us. So that's the first point, what this righteousness is. It is those four types, right? But it is a longing, it is a hunger and a thirst for God himself. What does this do for us then? It changes us. In short, it changes us. And why does it change us? Because everything that Jesus is, is talking about at this point is grace to us. And if there's something that, that, that there, there's an agent of change in the Bible, it is not law, 
It is not morals. The one and only thing that changes people is the grace of God. And this is where he drives us. So let's look at this in the second point as we see what this does to us. First, it leads us to extend the very mercy to others that we have been shown by Jesus. You can think of these as application if you want to. Right? But it leads us to extend the very mercy to others that we have been shown by Jesus. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. The assumption there is that blessed are those who are showing mercy to others, for they shall receive mercy. As I said last week, these characteristics are not isolated. They all work together. And so having hungered and thirst for righteousness and been satisfied, right, this moves the follower of Christ out into the world to extend the very thing that he or she has been shown, which is mercy to others. This mercy flows from the poverty of spirit in verse 3 that we looked at last week. And why? Because Christians know they have been shown mercy. There is so much to say about this point right here. In many ways, this distinguishes so much of what a Christian is and what a Christian isn't. It's not your ability to clean up. It's not your ability to be nice it really comes down to, are you somebody who loves to show mercy? In Matthew 18, Jesus tells this parable called the unforgiving servant. And this is that parable where the king has a servant who has this enormous debt that would, I think I calculated, it would take 200,000 years of wages to, to pay it off. It's not going to happen. And so the king orders the servant to be thrown in jail. At that moment, the servant falls on his knees, right? Poverty of spirit begs him, please don't do this. And what happens? The king has mercy on him. And he forgives him of his debts and he sends him on his way. But then that servant, Jesus says, comes across one of his servants who owes him a much smaller amount, still a big amount, but fraction of what he owed, can't pay. So he's ordered to go be thrown in jail, in which that second servant falls down on his knees and says, please forgive me. To which the servant, original servant, who was just shown mercy by the king, does what? Says no. Tried to strangle him. Sends him to jail. The king gets word of this, and as the parable ends, he brings in that servant. And this is what the text says. The king says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? God loves mercy. He loves to show mercy. And because he shows it to us, he commands his children to do likewise. Being merciful in the Beatitudes is a result of our poverty of spirit because in your time of need, you know that God has been merciful to you. This is why we will keep coming back to this. We will keep coming back to this over and over. It's, it's how Jesus' kingdom will function. 
But this is the first thing this righteousness, this grace does. We show mercy to our families. We show mercy to our neighbors, our coworkers, to the world, because we know how much mercy God has already shown us. And for those in the back of their mind, they're like, but, 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 what, about, what about deal with the text? We can talk about situations in my office over coffee all day long. Jesus chooses to use the word mercy here. And if that's unsettling to us, let, let's let it be unsettling. But this is not the last thing that, he, that this moves us to next. We are to live lives that honor God. Look at verse 8. Blessed then are the, poor, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart was often the language for single-mindedness. If something is pure, it is of one substance, not multiple. Uh, in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus will say this. He'll say, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Serving two masters is being what we would refer to as double-minded. It is not single-minded. And this is basically to be pure in heart then is, is a re restatement of the first commandment that you shall have no other gods but me. So how does one become single-minded or pure in heart? It's not random. It is a result of what? Mourning your sin or repenting is what Jesus is getting at. Mourning one's sin. To be pure in heart then is actually a result of mourning one's sin. And this disciple then sets out with one thing on his or her mind, which is serving and honoring God. You see how that grace and that act of repentance changes us to go be pure in heart as we go to serve God with our lives. Why? Because after that repentance, as it were, right, you are now single-minded don't think about timelines here, but just the idea of it being single-minded towards living for God. There's one thing. Um, you can say what you want about Chick-fil-A. I am a McDonald's guy myself, so I will probably agree with you. But one thing that's abundantly clear, that's abundantly clear when you step foot into a Chick-fil-A is they are there to serve the customer. And it is incredible to watch. It's actually their pleasure. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and now, frankly, I'm a little tired of hearing about how happy they are to serve me. I'd actually be okay if every once in a while my order did get, uh, was wrong, or, you know, somebody didn't smile at me once. Um, but no, I'm just kidding. I, I'm just actually jealous. Um, I'm jealous because I want to be that happy. Um, I want to be that dedicated, that single-minded about one thing. I want to be good at it. Everything Chick-fil-A does has one thing in mind, and that's the customer. That's being single-minded. The Bible will call it being pure in heart. And this is what the righteousness of Jesus moves us to do as well as it pertains to living our lives solely to honor him and it makes sense, right, that if we are not serving two masters, if we, for mourning our sin, the, the result of mourning our sin, uh, the, the way that it motivates us for action is that it, it takes away the sin that so easily entangles. To go back to Chick-fil-A, right, or just the service in industry in general, if you are sold out for the customer, you are going to see that customer. 
It's what repentance does. It gives us new eyes to see God, to see the things of God. If you are sold out, single-minded for that customer, you're going to see that customer, which means when they walk in, you're going to notice them. You're going to anticipate their need, which is hospitality. Oh, you have children? Let me take this food to your table. No, I don't want a tip. Serving you as my tip. You know the story, what they, what they say. But contrast that with walking into a restaurant, right, and the employees are, what, on their phone. No longer single-minded. Right? Maybe uh, they're just in deep thought about not wanting to be there. Um, maybe they're wondering how long it is until they can get their lunch break, right? That mindset, that disposition, what it blinds you to the customer in this case, but it blinds you to the things that God is doing in this world. And so what it means to be pure in heart, that you will see God, is actually in our repentance, we become single-minded towards the things of God to live our, live our lives for God and actually begin to see things that, 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 that reflect the, the invisible God in this world. And this is what Jesus is saying to, to the disciples who mourn and repent of their sin, go into the world single-minded and thus looking to live lives that honor God. For the pure in heart, this might simply look like this, friends. It might simply look like someone who shows mercy because they love mercy, not because they are hoping to get something out of it. It could be growing in patience because you have seen how patient God has been with you and continues to be patient with you. We call this growing in grace. And this grace has sent them into action as one who desires his ways, not their own, okay? Note before we leave this point, this is not external piety. Jesus is speaking of internal realities here. So let's note that difference. This is an internal reality. It is his grace to you that has caused you to love his ways. Not external religion, we might say. In Dan Doriani's book on the Sermon on the Mount, he notes, Jesus flays the scribes and Pharisees for their merely external religion. In Matthew 23, he says, You tithe men and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Well, so far, the hunger and thirst for righteousness that Jesus satisfies sends us in the direction of showing mercy to others. It sends us into life, living lives that honor the Lord because we are single-minded about him because of our mourning or our repentance. Lastly, we are to make peace in uh, and around us. We are we're to be peacemakers, the text says. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If Jesus has come to bring anything, right, it's peace. Peace between you and God, peace between you and your neighbor. Jesus' kingdom is defined by peace. But why? Like, why are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, why, why are they peacemakers? If, you know, if does this just sort of naturally come about? And the, and, the, and the reason they're peacemakers is because of what it means to be meek. As we said last week. It's because the meek know that they don't deserve anything, but have been given everything in Christ. In other words, right, they have no demands to make on anybody. Right? There's nothing for them to prove because they have everything and they did nothing to deserve it. And when you know that about yourself, which we might also call being comfortable in my own skin, you are at peace. And the only people who can bring peace are those who are at peace. 
But what's under this for Jesus is not just, okay, here's the formula, right? You're meek, you understand who you are, you understand you don't deserve anything, you get Jesus' righteousness, and this uh, lack of insertion into every single conversation to prove yourself, or this, this lack of, of, of trying to earn your own righteousness allows you to be at peace with yourself, which allows you to be peacemakers. What's at the bottom of that is you know that you are loved unconditionally. You know that you are loved unconditionally by Christ. Because this is what it means to come back to righteousness, to have received Jesus' righteousness. And when you understand that, when you know that declaration is upon you, regardless if you feel it or not, there is peace within you, which means that you are now someone who can be a peacemaker. This is the result of meekness. It is understanding unconditional love. Apart from my marriage to Ada, the one relationship that I have that expresses this well is probably with my brother. I have an older brother, three years older. We are very different, but we are also very close. And I know that's not always the case with siblings, so I'm very thankful for it. But when we are together, and, and, and if you have a sibling here, you might know this uh, if you're older, um, older siblings, I mean, Right, there's a certain peace about you when you're with this person, at least for me when I'm with my brother. Um, there, there's a, man, there's a, just a, um, there's nothing that I have to prove to him and there's nothing that I can really prove to him, right? I, I, I don't have to prove that I'm funny, right? He knows I'm funny. Um, I, we make each other laugh all the time. I don't have to prove I'm great. He already thinks I'm great. I don't have to do something to get him to notice me. Or certainly not to do anything to get him to love me. He loves me unconditionally. There's nothing about me that he doesn't already know. He has seen my best and my worst, and he still loves me. He's still my brother. In other words, I have no place to hide when I'm with him. He knows me. And you know what that's like? It's actually incredibly freeing. It's incredibly freeing. We become meek according to Jesus because we have in our poverty of spirit and our mourning and our repenting has said, this is who I am. I have nothing to hide. And you know what Jesus says to you? He says, I still love you. That is a function of the imputed righteousness that you have. It, he doesn't withhold it from you, is what he is saying. Which means you are unconditionally loved. And if there's something that's going to cause us to go and be peacemakers in this world, it is knowing that, which, friends, is an expression of grace as well. Only those at peace can be peacemakers. And only those who have peace are those who know that they are unconditionally loved, that you don't have to prove anything to anybody. Is this the relationship you think of when you think of your relationship with God? All right, we've seen three things here. We've seen how we become people that show mercy. We've seen how uh, we move into the world with a pure heart and undivided heart. And we've seen how we become people who show peace because we have peace because we know that we are unconditionally loved. This is what righteousness does to us. This is what grace does to us. It changes us 
And it sends us, excuse me, into action as agents of God to show mercy, to live a life that honors him alone. Do you know this grace? This is, this, this is what rounds out these beatitudes for Jesus. Do you know this grace? Is this what motivates you to action? Or, right, is, is the unconditional love component just not possible for you? And that for you, that, that, that it is a works right, you know, righteousness for you that I have to go and present myself and do things in order to be loved. Because that's not the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, nor is that the kingdom that he is inviting you to. Is this what motivates you to action, to serve, not in order to be loved by God, but because you are already loved by him? Do you know that you stand righteous in the face of God because he has declared you righteous? If you are looking for something to motivate you, to send you into action, it is sitting with that reality because that is grace, friends. It is the reinstatement of those who were, were far off who have been brought near. I've, I've alluded to it many times, and I'll end with this. Um, just come back with me to the parable of the two sons, the prodigal son, as many of us remember, right? The, the son who, who, who took his inheritance early, which by taking his early uh, was the worst thing you could do to a parent at that point in time. You basically said they were dead to you. You also stole essentially from the other siblings because now their inheritance is less. And you know the story. He goes off and he goes and he squanders this. And he has nothing. And he's thinking, I could actually be better off if I were a servant in my father's house. And so as you read the story, right, and we're all familiar with the part where the son is walking home and, and, and there he is. But what happens, right? The father sees him and the father runs out after him. It's an amazing picture of what Jesus is pointing out here in these Beatitudes. It is his initiation towards his son. But what does the father do, right? He kills the fatted calf. He gives him the robe. But he gives him that ring, right? And maybe we haven't talked about that ring, but what is that ring? It's the family label. It's what's, it is the declaration that you are now a part of this family. And I can imagine that there were days ahead when that son who knew what he had done had thought, how is this possible? And you know what grace says? It says it doesn't matter what you think or how you feel. You're to live righteous because I have declared you righteous. Because I have declared you my son and my daughter. Is this the grace that you know? Is this the gospel that you know? Because this is the only thing that moves people to change, that moves people to action, to move into God's kingdom, into God's world, to what? Be, be merciful to others because they know how merciful God's been to him. To be pure in heart because they are enamored with what God has done and who he is and how, he, how they want him, them to live. But also the ones who bring peace because they know that they are loved and they are declared righteous because of Jesus. That's grace. This is what changes us. And may it always be what changes us as his children. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would we just stop for a minute and think about what it means for you to bring us into your kingdom. For you to declare us sons and daughters. 
And would that overwhelm us? Would that grow us uh, in grace? Would that lead us to be merciful, uh, to live lives for God, to be people who are at peace, who can offer peace because they know that they are loved, all those wonderful things? But what would, what would it cause our hearts to long for Jesus, the one who gives us those things? We thank you for that. We pray now that as we go to his table now, that you would be with us by your spirit, that you would meet with us, not because we are now sinless, but because we are invited as sinners to come to this table, which your blood has made clean on our behalf. Go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this table, as is our custom 